only hope in life and in death is the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, if you have your Bible, please do open back up to Habakkuk chapter 2. It'll be really helpful for you to have that open as we look at it together this morning. In the uh, early 90s, there was an ad campaign by the mobile network company Orange. I wonder if you remember it, those of you who were young or old enough to remember it. The goal of this campaign was to project a vision of the future, a vision of where things were going with respect to the technological revolution, and to convince you that if you wanted to be a part of everything that was happening that was exciting in the future, you needed to be with Orange. They needed to be your mobile network provider. In their adverts, after foretelling all the ways technology would help and connect us in the future, the slogan at the end of every advert was always the same. Does anyone remember it? The future's bright, the future's orange. Now that was a pretty big claim. Sadly, it didn't work out for orange. Orange was swallowed up by EE, and their brand is no more. The future is not orange. That's dangerous to say in Northern Ireland, isn't it? What I want us to consider this morning, though, is the assertion made in the first part of their slogan, the future's bright. If you were to ask someone out in Belfast today, what do you think about the future for for humanity, for this planet? Do you think it's looking bright? I wonder how they'd answer. I think many people would answer by saying, well, I'm not sure. With the heating up of the earth, the extreme weather events we're seeing, the future's looking a bit ominous for humanity and for the planet Earth. And that leads us to another question more generally. Where is everything heading? Where's history heading? Where's our futures heading? Where is the future of humanity going? I think more and more people are beginning to think about this question today, and if they're honest, they would say it's probably a question or a series of questions that we're a bit anxious about. Well, this is the question, where's it all going? That is answered clearly by God in our passage this morning. And the answer that he gives is not something that will not come to fruition, like Orange's plan for the future. God's plan for the future is certain. Because it is his plan, and it is a future that is full of hope. Last time we saw the Lord tell Habakkuk that he was to prepare to receive a vision. That vision would help him to understand where all of history was heading. And he needed this because Habakkuk was really confused about what God was doing in the world. Habakkuk was looking out on a world that seemed chaotic. Evil seemed to be running rampant everywhere. It just seemed to be moral chaos and catastrophe at every turn, kind of like our news reports today. He was really confused. And so the Lord said, I'm going to give you a vision of the end that will help you trust my purposes 
even in the midst of all this apparent chaos. We looked at the introduction to the vision last week in verse 4, where God presents us with two ways of living in this world. One way to live is the life of the proud, the self-righteous, the life of unbelief. It is depicted in the person whose soul is not upright, who is puffed up. That's the language of verse 4. Puffed up with pride and a person who's not right with God. There's one way to do life in the world, the life of unbelief. Contrasting this then in verse 4 is the life of faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is the life of trusting in the good purposes of God, even when we cannot fully see, discern, or understand them. Two ways to live presented in verse 4. That was the introduction to the vision. Then the rest of this chapter, after this introduction, speaks of the fact that these two ways of living in the world come with consequences in the end. The Lord said to Habakkuk, remember in chapter 2, verse 2, this vision is about what will happen at the end of time as we know it. For those who live the life of pride, rejection of God, unbelief, there will be judgment and woe at the end, including the Babylonians who Habakkuk was so concerned about. Contrasting this for those who live the life of faith, who are righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, they will enjoy the blessing of God's favor in the new heavens and new earth forevermore. So if you can just imagine those two branches going down, the life of unbelief that leads to God's judgment and the life of faith, the righteous living by faith that leads to God's blessing. That is what this vision is now all about a vision of where history is going for the righteous and the unrighteous. And this passage presents to us the characteristics and consequences of the life of unbelief and then the characteristics and consequences of the life of belief, faith. There are five statements of lament from verses 6 down to 20. And those statements unpack a sinful characteristic that will come under God's judgment in the end. And what we're going to do is walk through, first of all, the characteristics and the consequences of the life of unbelief in these woe statements. And then we're going to look at the characteristics and consequences of the life of faith. And the big question that this passage asks us is, where's my future going? Is the future bright for me, according to God's word, or is it dark? That's how this passage searches us this morning. So let's first of all look at these characteristics and consequences of the life of unbelief. The five woe statements. The first comes in verse 6. 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? This is a woe pronounced on those who reject God and ruthlessly grab things for themselves. This woe is a woe pronounced against the characteristic of selfish greed. When the Babylonians, who have been in view in this book, that great empire, when they ruthlessly invaded nations, they greedily grabbed the plunder for themselves. They showed no regard for the people they came to govern. And so this woe is pronounced on those who are selfish and greedy in this world. Verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. This is the person in the world who is aggressive and who makes themselves rich by grabbing from those weaker than them. The bullies in the workplace, the people who are wealthy and who use their wealth to exert power and control in an unjust manner over others. This language of loading oneself with pledges means they take and they promise to give back, but they never do. This is the person who is more concerned with lining their own pockets than living the life that seeks first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And we're told in verses 7 and 8 that God's judgment will come against people who live this way in the world. Habakkuk asked the question, for how long will this go on? And look at the answer we read of their debtors coming suddenly, suddenly arising. Verse 8, as they have plundered others, so they shall become plunder. Here we see the principle of the reciprocal nature of God's just judgments. What people sow, they reap. Now, as Christians, we've got to recognize just how the culture of selfish greed round about us can influence our lives. Jesus told us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that he would look after our basic needs. We have to be really careful with all the influences around us that we don't flip that around to make seeking first the kingdom, we make that play second fiddle to us seeking first our own little kingdom. Contrasting this characteristic of selfish greed and the judgment that will come upon this selfish greed in the end, remember what we're told in chapter 2, verse 4. But the righteous will live by faith. They will be faithful to honor God's will and God's ways. They will fight the tendency towards selfish greed and will seek to become more and more self-giving as the Lord is self-giving. The righteous will live by faith. The second woe then comes in verses 9 to 11. This characteristic of sin that will in the end be brought under God's judgment. We could call it trusting in shady, self-made security. Verse 9, this woe is pronounced over the one who gets, we read, evil gain for his house, 
to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Now, when the Babylonians expanded their empire, they did all they could to make it secure in their own strength. This woe addresses those in the world who seek to selfishly build security for themselves without recognizing that it is the Lord who gives ultimate security and protection to our lives. Now, we know it's not wrong to try to work hard to make our lives more secure through appropriate savings, insurances, and putting on our seatbelt. But it is wrong to make those worldly means of security our foundation of security in place of the Lord. I always find it ironic that on the American dollar, the banknotes, it says, in God we trust. And the big question is, is it in God we trust or is it in this money we trust? We need to humbly remember the truth of Psalm 33, 16. The king is not saved ultimately by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. You see, trust and security comes from the Lord, not from ourselves. When we forget this and put ourselves under bucket loads of pressure to make ourselves secure, we get inherently insecure. Look at verse 10. The result of this kind of shady, self-made security. Verse 10, we read that these wicked ones have cut off many peoples. They've even forfeited their life in pursuit of this security. Does that not remind you of the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 36? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus said, you want real security? You've got to learn that your security comes from letting go of your need to try and control the future and learning more and more to rest in me, rest in the Lord. That's where true security for the present and the future lies. So by all means, save some money for the future. Pay for insurance. Put on your seatbelt. But you remember, those are not the ultimate things that give you security. It is the Lord who is our foundation, our rock, He will never be shaken out from us. We may not be guilty of the excesses of Babylon, but the attitude that trusts mainly in the security this world affords, this attitude, that can draw us away from the life of living by faith. Remember the contrast to this sinful characteristic of self-made, shady, gaining security for yourself. The righteous will live by faith. They will find their security in the Lord whilst they put on their seatbelt and everything else. Proverbs 18, 10 to 11 contrasts these two lives very, very well. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So ask yourself, am I truly seeking my security for my present and my future in the Lord? Or am I trusting in my own efforts 
of self-made security? Is that where all my hope is, really? There's balance here, but make sure the Lord comes first. Well, the third woe then pronounce this characteristic that will bring God's judgment in the end is the ruthless pursuit of prestige and success. We see this in verses 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. This is a woe for those who seek to make a name for themselves by trampling ruthlessly over others. Driven by the spirit of the first Babylonians at the Tower of Babel, who wanted to make a name for themselves. This is for those in the workplace who just want to climb the ladder and they don't care about who they trample over to get to the top. This is for those who cheat to make their way to a place of success. This is a woe for those who lie and bend integrity and defraud others to make a sale. And look at what we read in verse 13. Those who seek to build their own worldly empires without thought for God, they're laboring merely for fire. They weary themselves for nothing. Man, that is a sobering verse. All the blood, sweat, and tears to make lots of money for the unbeliever. They're just merely laboring to make more fuel for the fire, wearying themselves in life for nothing. Think of every famous celebrity who's made it all, but they don't have Christ. Everything, nothing. Isaiah 55, 2 and 3, the prophet Isaiah asks the question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? In 1 Corinthians 3, the apostle Paul said, look, we're all building our lives. And one day, everything we've built will be scrutinized by a holy God. That which was not done in dependence on the Lord, our self-made projects will be burned up. That which has been done in dependence on the Lord by faith will remain. And so the instruction of 1 Corinthians 3.10 is, let us then be careful how we build our lives. Let us invest in things that are eternal. Well, again, contrasting this characteristic, this ruthless pursuit of prestige and success, remember, we are told the righteous will live by faith. We will trust in and be dependent on the Lord. That dependence on the Lord will be expressed with honesty and integrity, so that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we'll try to do it all to the glory of the Lord, not just to trample over others to be successful. Well, the fourth woe then comes in verses 15 to 17. We could call this a woe pronounced on self-indulgent exploitation. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and makes them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. This is a woe pronounced on those who objectify people and use them for their own shameful gain. It's directed to those who exploit people for their own selfish ends. The whole pornographic industry reeks of this kind of sin. Objectification of people to gaze on their nakedness without regard for those who have become slaved to that awful way of life. 
There's also a woe pronounced here to those who exploit the natural resources of the world in a way that shows no regard for God's creation. Verse 17 is interesting. God speaks of the violence done to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon was a country known for its beauty, these beautiful cedar trees, natural beauty. This is a word spoken against those who have mistreated God's world and mistreated animals. They have raped the world instead of cultivating it carefully. I think this reminds us, as Christians, we're to be those who lead the way in seeking to steward our planet and the resources of the natural world. Remember, Adam's commission in Eden was to cultivate the garden and keep it. We're to cultivate and keep our world. This is part of living by faith. So let's keep trying to wash out those annoying peanut butter jars that are really hard to clean and put them in the recycle box. Let's do it. Even though times we hear reports that we don't even know where it's going, let's just keep doing our part to recycle to the glory of God. It would be so much easier to clean out the fridge if you could just chuck it all in the bin, but you've got to sort out the recycling. And what's your motivation? I'm trying to keep the world in some way to cultivate. It's a small wee part, but I'm going to do what I can. Let's be wise about our consumption levels. Because this is a word spoken to those who have ruthlessly exploited not just people made in God's image, but God's world. We have not been careful to cultivate and keep. We've just cut down trees left, right, and center. We've just, just exploited it to the point where it can't bear it anymore. To those who practice this self-indulgent exploitation, look at the word of God's judgment in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come round to you. Now, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah spoke of God's wrath as a cup in his hand that those who have sinned will have to drink from. In Revelation 16, 19, it's referred to as the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. This cup of God's wrath will be handed to those who exploit others in this way. They will reap what they have sown. Now, we'll come back to this cup idea in a moment. But for now, let's just press on again to the contrast. The righteous will live by faith, trusting in God's will and God's ways, not just doing things our own way. Finally then, the fifth woe pronounced here is a woe on those who are trusting in empty, useless idols. We see this in verses 18 and 19, and notice here how the woe in this section is put in the center of these verses this time to emphasize the climactic nature of this final sinful characteristic. In verse 19, we read, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Then on other sides of that woe, you get an explanation of the problem with idols. Rest of verse 19, they may be nice and shiny, but there's no breath in them. Then verse 18, up above, it's a teacher of lies. Idols are a lie. They're no God at all. They cannot give what God alone can give. And then look at the penetrating statement towards the end of verse 18 that gets at the heart of idolatry. Its maker trusts in his own creation. Here is the essence of idolatry. It's not just little statues and primitive peoples. The essence of idolatry is alive and well in our culture today. It's trusting in creating things. 
trusting in self-made things for satisfaction rather than trusting in the Lord. We can make almost anything an idol. And those who practice idolatry, we are told here, will face God's woe, His judgment. Now, those are the five characteristics and consequences of the life of unbelief. Five woes pronounced on those who reject God and live practicing these sins. Think of people you know outside of Christ today, living this way. They will face the woe of God's judgment. Now, let's turn a corner and see two rays of hope in this passage that show that coming under God's judgment for sin doesn't have to be the way it is. Let's see now the characteristic and the consequences of the life of faith. We're just going to look at one characteristic and one amazing consequence of the life of faith, though it branches out into many consequences. One characteristic that if it's present in your life, will totally change your present and make your future bright instead of dark. That characteristic is this. Surrendering to the Lordship of God in all of life. Big question, have you surrendered to the Lordship of God in all of life? In contrast to idols who have no breath at all, in verse 19, In verse 20, we read, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. This is God's way of saying to those raging against him in their pride and sinful life of unbelief, Stop! For all of those who are characterized by those sinful characteristics that will come under God's judgment, verse 20 is God's declaration, Be still and know that I am God. Stop the selfish greed. Stop seeking security in worldly things. Stop the ruthless pursuit of a name for yourself. Stop the self-indulgent exploitation. Stop trusting in yourself and created things. Cease. Stand down from your pride and rebellion and unbelief. Bow before the Lord of all the earth. Surrender to His sovereignty. He reigns the world. You do not. He is in control of history. You are not. He has set a day where he will fully and finally judge all sin and injustice and he will bring you down from your high nest of pride. He will one day right all wrongs. He will fully and finally eradicate all sin from his new creation. Verse 20 is a call to all the earth to surrender 
to the lordship and rule and reign of our God. We call this repentance. It is stopping our life where we just live for self, and it is surrendering our lives to the Lord to live no longer for self, but to live according to His revealed will and ways. The question might come, well, I'll stop. But what about all my sins in the past that have brought me under that judgment? I've done all those things. Does that mean I'm destined in the end to face the judgment and wrath of this holy God? Is there any way to come out from under this future of judgment? Well, that brings us once again to this statement. The righteous shall live by faith. And to the center of what makes the good news, the gospel, so good. Though we have all sinned, we are all guilty in one way or another of doing those five things, those five sinful characteristics. We have all been part of contributing to that world of fallenness. Though we have all sinned and justly deserve to face that judgment from a holy God in the end for our debts that we've run up against His holiness, God in His mercy has made provision so that our sin debt that would bring us into that judgment can be completely cleared away. The Old Testament spoke of a coming one who would be a Savior, who would save us from sin and all the consequences of our sins. The prophet Zephaniah declared that there was one who would come and take away all the judgments that would stand against us, clearing away all our evil so that we would not have to be afraid of meeting God in the future. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explained over and over again how we come out from under God's judgment because of our sin and how we are transferred into the kingdom of God's Son where all we will know is God's blessing and delight and favor. In Colossians 2.13, here is one place where he explained how this happens. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You ever seen one of those playground bullies who'll say, oh, you're dead. You're dead. Well, that was our reality. One day spoken over you about the future, you're dead. But listen to this. You were once dead, but God made you alive together with Christ. God made you alive when you were dead. Having forgiven us, All our trespasses, every sin forgiven. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. There on the cross, all the judgment for your sin meted out on a substitute, the Lamb of God. Now remember I said we'd come back to that cup. God said, as he announced his judgment on the unrighteous, the cup will come to you. Now that cup, as we know in Scripture, represents God's judgment. 
in Gethsemane, what was the language that Jesus used when he was praying about what he was going to face on the cross? What did he say? Lord, take this cup from me. He was going to take the cup of God's wrath and on the cross, drink it down. The cup that should have been yours and mine, he was going to take it himself. And overwhelmed in Gethsemane by the reality of that, he asked the Lord to take it away. But then he said, but Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And then that great gospel statement at the end, whenever he found the disciples sleeping, rise and let us go from here. See the betrayers at hand. You see, Jesus would bear our judgment on the cross so that we wouldn't have to have a dark future. Paul explained to the Galatians, we studied this recently, that all we have to do now is receive that forgiveness that there is in Christ and to trust that He has taken the judgments against us away from us. Paul uses the very language that God used with Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Trust in Christ, the object of that faith, and you will find righteousness and life. We find life, forgiveness, grace, mercy, and peace in Christ. In Christ, there's no condemnation for you. None. Think about that in the future. None. Christ has exhausted it all. So we surrender to the Lordship of Christ. We receive Him by faith as our Savior. We trust Him alone to make us right with God. We bring every area of our lives under the Lordship of Christ our Savior. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Him. This is repentance and faith. We stop living for ourselves. We turn. We receive Christ by faith. And we bring our whole lives under His salvation and His Lordship. This is the life of faith that gives us life. That is the characteristic of the one who will have a bright future, surrendering to the lordship of God, the lordship of Christ in all of life. But what are the consequences of that? Very briefly, this takes us back to that beautiful, bright ray of hope in verse 14. The consequences of the life of faith, trusting in Christ alone to make you right with God, are set out here in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For those who have lived the life of faith, who are righteous by trusting in Christ, right with God by trusting in Jesus, by faith alone, we will enjoy the future set out for us in this glorious bright verse. This is a vision of the time when God will have eradicated all sin and evil. It is the time of the new heavens and new earth. If you are still a carrier of sin, you're infected by sin, you can never enter into God's new heaven and new earth because your sin would infect it, ruin it, and taint it. This is why God coming in judgment in Scripture is such good news. 
We tend to almost be embarrassed of God coming as a, a holy judge. And yet the scriptures, the Psalms especially, are exuberant. They say, let the rivers sing, let the trees rejoice. The Lord is coming to judge the earth. That's because they're rejoicing. God's coming to make everything right. He's coming to remove all brokenness, all sin, all death, all destruction. He's coming to eradicate it all, to set up a new heavens and a new earth, a place of glory. All that is broken will be mended, and all that produces sin will be fully and finally eradicated. Now, that's why if you're in your sins, you cannot be part of that. You have no bright hope if you're outside of Christ. You have only darkness to look forward to. Darkness, destruction at the hands of a holy, just God because of your proud unrighteousness. You're even sitting here now, maybe rebelling in your heart, hardening your ears, getting angry with me. Well, all of this is on a trajectory that leads to the last few chapters of the Bible, actually. Revelation 18, this announcement, fallen is Babylon. That is essentially judged as this sinful world. But then in Revelation 19, the contrast for those who are righteous by faith is made, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 20 to 22, a beautiful depiction of the new heavens and the new earth. And then in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, we read John's unpacking of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covered the sea. He writes, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They'll see his face, his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. There'll be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they'll reign forever and ever. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, John says, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. You ever heard that saying, you know, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it? Well, the new heavens and new earth will be perfect, and if you were to carry your sin into it, you'd ruin it. If any sin was permitted into it, it would be ruined. And so that is why God, our holy and righteous judge, has set a day where he will finally judge all those who are carriers of sin. They will be judged and sent to eternal hell. Jesus taught this continually. That is a reality. That is a reality. But... The righteous shall live by faith. There is salvation. There is hope. You can come out from under that dark future and know that the future will be bright for you. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That knowledge there means intimate relational communion with God. With no sin, no limitations on your mind. So you will comprehend fully the glory of God and somehow it will be getting fuller and fuller and fuller for all eternity. If you're carrying sin, you can't be a part of that. So the big question is, well, then how do I get rid of my sin? 
you give it to Jesus. He takes it from you. He says, I'll carry it. I'll take it away from you. And so then you're no longer a carrier of sin. You're credited with the righteousness of Christ by faith. And on the basis of faith in Christ alone, you're good. You have a bright future. You're safe. No judgment will touch you because Christ has taken it all away. I know you're sitting there quiet and all composed, but I hope that makes your heart sing. Because I'm telling you, that, that, is, that is a world of life and death difference for us. Relational, beautiful communion with God forever or eternal destruction at the hands of a holy God forever. Habakkuk was given this vision to help him when he was looking around at a world that seemed so marked by moral chaos. He said, Lord, are you just going to let this go on forever? And the Lord was saying, no, Habakkuk. Those that live that life of unrighteousness, there's a day set where they will be fully and finally judged. But the righteous will live by faith. So just keep trusting me. Trust the finished work of Christ. That is all you need to know that the future will be bright for you. So let's ask ourselves a couple of questions in closing. Is there hope for my future? How does this vision of the future give me hope today? How does it spur me on to keep living the life of faith when all of these influences are all around me? I'll let you meditate on those thoughts as we close with the words of the hymn we sang earlier. There is a day coming when we will rise and meet the Lord and sin and death will be no more and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Let's pray. Father, it has been my hope today that someone will hear this message and realize the dead end of their future without Christ. And it is my hope that they will see that, Father, in mercy, you have sent your Son to take away our sinful judgments. He bore the wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And now if we will stop that rebellion and repent and receive Christ by faith, that's all we need to be brought out from that condemnation and those judgments. We can be saved from it all through Jesus. And Lord, help us who know that hope to be eternally grateful. Fill our hearts with a right response, we pray. And if we don't know that hope, may we reach out now by faith and receive that hope in Christ, receiving and resting in him so that we could know peace with you, our God, now and forevermore. Thank you, Lord, for this hope that springs eternal. Thank you for Christ, our hope in life and in death. In his name we pray, amen. Well, I said that line, the righteous shall live by faith, is the centerpiece of the gospel we proclaim. We're going to stand and sing now of that hope 
in that one gospel. Let's stand and respond together. face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.